This is Michael Easley in Context. It's a delight to have you on the broadcast today with my friend, former fellow pastor, troublemaker, Dr. Erwin Wesley Lutzer. He's the pastor emeritus of the Moody Church, which is not related technically to the Moody Bible Institute, although very close proximity and close friends in ministry. 36 years he served there. We both earned our THMs from Dallas, the Logical Seminary. Great experience there. He earned an MA in philosophy from Loyola University, an honorary LLD from Simon Greenleaf School of Law. That's a fascinating story about that school of law, is it not? You know, I have not followed it as much as I should have, but it was in California. It was begun by John Warwick Montgomery, And he wanted to begin a law school because he foresaw what many Christians perhaps didn't, even back in the early 80s, that law was going to become a very important issue in America. Mm -hmm. Because as Rush Dooney tells us, show me your laws and I will show you your God. In other words, law ultimately rests on some value And that value ultimately is God. While I'm on the topic, I'll say this, that if the Supreme Court of the United States is answerable only to itself, the Supreme Court is God. God, So we must recognize that there is a God who is the ultimate lawgiver. The uh, book, The Testimony of the Evangelists, was that not written by Greenleaf? I believe that it was. It's a little booklet. And also what you found is... A man by the name of Blackstone, I believe it was, you know, determined much of what was taught in law schools back then here in America. For a long time, But uh, not anymore. I've been told, Michael, I have not confirmed this, so I hate to say it out loud, but people can check it out, that you can graduate with a law degree from Harvard University without taking a course on the Constitution you can substitute the constitution of some other country. Obviously, we are in trouble. It's a different culture. Well, you've written two books of late, and the book that kind of tees up the book we're going to talk about today, No Reason to Hide, in some respects, I don't want to say a crescendo of your ministry, but certainly a timely part. You're emeritus at Moody Church now, and you write a pretty bold book responding to what's happening in our culture. You know, Michael, people have to recognize that the culture war that we are in is not that we went looking for a culture war. We're in a culture war because the culture has come to us. And so I looked around and I saw the various issues that people were facing, and there's no way that we can avoid it. You know, there are some pastors who say that we have to totally avoid politics. Well, you can't because everything today is political. And so... What I want to also show, and I mentioned this in the first chapter, evil never retreats on its own. It only retreats when it is confronted by a more powerful force, and that force is the church. So the evil that we see around us is not going to retreat. It is going to continue. I didn't write the book to recapture the culture, but I did write the book to recapture the church. Because ultimately, we are not called to win, but we are called to stand. And as I look at society today, I see that oftentimes we are not standing. So very quickly, the book that you have referenced, No Reason to Hide, deals with issues like DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
We can discuss that. You can ask questions about it. But what I show is that it actually works against us rather than for us in our churches. It causes division. It's opposed to reconciliation. You know, also answering the question, should we feel guilty because we are on stolen land, as many people tell us that we are, or also, I have a chapter, of course, on propaganda, which I love to talk about because we're living in an era of propaganda, and I point out that the purpose of propaganda is to so shape people's view of reality that despite a mountain of evidence, they do not change their minds, and I discuss how language is used to bring that about. And then, what do parents say to a child who comes home and says, I think I'm trans? So, I deal with all those kinds of issues because I want Christians to be able to think biblically about a culture that we don't want, but a culture that has been thrust upon us. I want to start with a phrase I have said, and I've heard a lot of my peers say it, I no longer recognize my country. And as citizens of two worlds, as Augustine pointed out, city of God and the city of man, we're trying to be faithful in this culture and in broad strokes, Erwin, you and I have friends that talk about engaging the culture. But when they say that, it, in my estimation, is more of a capitulation to the current trends of the culture rather than the way you just described it. I wonder what your thoughts are on this, because you and I have mutual friends that are academics whom we respect, but they have essentially become woke. They've become certainly ascended to the issues. They're accepting of all genders. And it seems like a capitulation, but they would say, oh, we're doing it in a loving way to engage the culture. Well, Michael, you have said something that is very interesting. If a church goes to the point where they are willing to accept multiple genders, then we are in very deep trouble because that actually is demonic. You know, I heard it pointed out the other day that there is an instance in the New Testament where Jesus encountered a man with multiple pronouns. Jesus asked in Mark chapter 5, what is your name, singular? And he said, we are legion. There are many of us. We have multiple pronouns, so to speak. I'm sure that when the New Testament was written, no one had that in mind, but that was an interesting application. This is destroying our young people. So, since you say that there are many people who capitulate under the banner of love, let me talk about love. Yeah. I point out in the book that love can be absolutely evil. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they didn't stop loving they just started to love pleasure, love money, love themselves, the Apostle Paul says. So, love can be evil. The Bible says that love rejoices in the truth. And Jesus says, herein is love, that you keep my commandments. So, the word love today, like an elastic band, is being used to encapsulate anything that people want to do under the guise of loving but it may actually be contrary to truth, contrary to scriptures. So, to those churches out there who think that they are doing a favor to people because they accept multiple pronouns or same-sex relationships, they need to understand very clearly that they are violating scripture. And, you know, recently, 
There was a baseball player, you probably heard about him, who wrote on his own social media feed that he was a Christian and was standing against the LGBTQ plus community, and he was severely reprimanded, and you know that now he has apologized. I understand his dilemma. He probably would have been fired if he wouldn't have apologized. But Michael, maybe we're ahead in this discussion, but I have to say this. I see in the church that there is a winnowing, the chaff from the wheat, and there's a separation coming from those believers who are going to say, we will stand strong no matter what, versus those that are willing to capitulate for the sake of the culture. Some time ago, a man texted me, he's a businessman, and he said that in his company, he was asked whether or not, he was told he had to sign this statement to keep his job. He asked, can I sign it as a Christian? And I said, well, you can sign number one, number two, number three, but you can't sign number four. When it comes to multiple pronouns, we're not doing people a favor if we support or become accomplices to their addictions or their their confusion. Mm-hmm. We're not doing people a favor. And if people say, well, that's my truth, the answer is, oh, really? Well, this is my truth that I'm calling you the way you were born. Now, just to be clear, I make the point that if Bert wants to be called Betty, call him Betty because names are not gendered. But if you want to be truthful, you certainly cannot call Bert she. So you have to either avoid the pronoun thing by always using his name, or you have to stand your conviction, and you have to take the consequences. The question is, are we as Christians going to be willing to take the consequences? Let me take a little sidebar on your comment, and I know we are jumping ahead in your book, but we have a mutual friend that has one of the largest congregations in the world, in the country, with a reach around the world, and they are hosting a completely gay, LGBT-affirming conference. All the speakers, two of the men who are there are gay. One is married as a gay man, and the whole thing is unconditional love, that God loves unconditionally in secondhand conversations with this individual to try to talk about, for example, Christopher Yuan and Rosario Butterfield, who I think hold a very good biblical balance to how you talk about these issues without capitulating. There is a reversion to that because, no, you have to be loving and welcoming and accepting and affirming. And so you think the solution to that or the consequence is going to be winnowing? You know, Michael, I've thought about these things. And by the way, you shouldn't be entirely shocked that I'm writing another book. <laughs> but that'll be out sometime next year. So let's not, let's not confuse the issues. We're talking about no reason to hide. But the point that I am making is God does not love everyone unconditionally. God loves the elect unconditionally. 17th chapter of the book of John, where Jesus says very clearly, he makes the statement that thou hast loved them even as thou hast loved me. 
But the idea that God unconditionally loves everyone, which seems to imply that he unconditionally approves of my behavior, is false. You think, for example, of the number of passages of Scripture in the Psalms and elsewhere where it says very clearly, God is angry with the wicked every day. There is not unconditional love. Now, I do believe that for those who accept Christ as Savior, God loves them differently because they're seen in Christ, as I mentioned. But this idea that God loves people unconditionally, anyone who says that should reread the first chapter of the book of Romans to get over that idea. And the book that I'm working on, though this is implied in the book that we're talking about, is our definition of God has been so enculturalized, I've never used that word before, but I think it yes. fits here, that really he is approving everything that we want to do. About two years ago, The Atlantic had an article, which on the online version was entitled, Nearer My God to Me. And what that article said is, God is becoming more liberal. He's beginning to tolerate things that were condemned in the <laughs> Old Testament. He's beginning to tolerate all these things because this was a British writer, and she pointed to the fact that Methodists in Britain after prayerful consideration, prayerful consideration decided that they were going to approve of same-sex relationships, and I believe also ordination, etc. So, and once you approve of one, you're going to approve of the other. So, God is becoming have to. Yeah, whatever have to. we want God to be, and that's exactly where we are in this culture. I, I keep saying that God created man in his image, and man created God in his image ever since. You know, we keep trying to conform. It's the age old, I can never love a God who. I can never worship a God who. And, and this, you know, anyway. Let's talk about the book in specificity. You begin talking about the authentic self, and you use that to describe this, I have to be true to me, how I'm wired. Expand a little bit on that. Yes, actually, you know, Carl Truman wrote an excellent book about this, and I know that I quote him in that chapter. Yes. And the whole point is simply this, that throughout history, the lie of Eden, you shall be like God, you shall be like Elohim, has been lived out in various experiences. And you have Rousseau, for example, let's begin with him, who basically said is that humans have to follow their nature. And whatever their nature is, is good. If only they were unchained from civilization, from society, from culture, they would be happy and they live together with sweetness and love. Of course, he didn't say it that way, but I'm exaggerating a little bit. So then what you have is, throughout history, you have people, of course, like Karl Marx, who coming at it differently, but still believing that really that the only reason that people commit crimes is because of oppression. Take away the oppression, and the crimes will go away. And so he very much wanted to destroy the family. Lenin, even more, because what they said is, the family is a unit of oppression. Men oppress their wives, 
Parents oppress their children. They take them to church. God is the ultimate oppressor. So what we have to do is to free the individual. Now, of course, in Marxism, you're not very free because the state owns everything, but let's set that on the side for a moment. And so you have in our society today the whole idea of the deification of man. And this enters into the whole question of truth. The reason that you have such a thing as my truth and your truth is that we become the truth. It's not Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. It is my truth. I point out in the book, No Reason to Hide, the book that we're talking about, that at Princeton, there was a professor there from Romania who lived under communism, and he wrote an article, which I assume is still online, entitled, Math is Not White and Racist. The idea is this. Students are being taught that if you believe that math is objective and there's only one right answer, if you believe that, you are actually, you know, a white supremacist. Now, can you imagine, <laughs> and I know it's time for us to start to laugh, that some Princeton grads open a bank just across the way on your street. Lo and behold, they have the idea that there isn't just one right answer to mathematical issues. And so you put in $1,000 and they come back and say, well, our math said it was only 700. Well, you can see where that's going. And while I'm talking, I point out that in Orwell's book, 1984, Winston was taken into a room and he was told in the Ministry of Love that two plus two is sometimes equal to five, sometimes it's equal to three, sometimes it's equal to both. Now, I've thought about that. Nobody can believe two plus two is equal to five. But what they wanted him to do was to learn to live by lies. And our society wants us to learn to live by lies. Everybody knows that men can't have babies, too. Everybody knows that. But we're supposed to go along with a lie, you know, that if I was born a man, but I now think I'm a woman. What we need to do is to point out, and I know that I'm going to another chapter in my book when I transition to this, but we need to point out and help parents to see that they need to help their children to see that self-perception is not always an accurate guide to reality. There are plenty of people in a psych ward who believe that they are Napoleon, but they're not. And your self-perception is the problem. It's not a body problem. It's a mind problem. But anyway, that chapter that you're referring to, mm. I need to be true to me, who I am. And if you ask the question, what is the missing doctrine? It is the biblical doctrine of sin. And I should have made this point earlier regarding Karl Marx. His view of human nature is seen everywhere. Defund the police. Why? The police are oppressive. Open the jails. Jails are oppressive. Remove the oppression, and then there won't be any crime. It's not working very well for us here in the city of Chicago. 
Yeah, and yeah, when I talk about no one, it's hard to recognize our country when we look at these cities that have, during the BLM crisis, when things were burning down buildings, CRT, woke, whatever you want to glom together, there was a unwillingness to say, well, if you take police authority out, you defund police, you won't, you know, prosecute criminal activity, of course you're going to have mayhem, but you've got to blame it on something else because you can't take responsibility. And, and again, to say that I'm a white, privileged person because I hold that view, right? I want every person listening to us today to understand this culture. We're living in a culture where we no longer have arguments and counter-arguments. We are being run by ideology. And remember that ideas do not have to work in order for them to survive. They only have to sound good. So let me give you a few examples. That's one right there. Let's take, for example, if you say that uh, children in a two-parent family do much better than a one-parent family, as many studies show, you won't be met by counter-arguments. There won't be those who say, oh, no, there's a study over here that shows that children with one parent do just as well or better. No, you'll be told that you're a white supremacist. And in my book, No Reason to Hide, I detail an organization dedicated to help families that is now condemning family supremacy. So there you go. Let's talk about the uniqueness of America. Having come back from Albania, I can tell you that I believe that America is unique, that it is exceptional. But if you say that, you're a white nationalist. It's not as if you're met with an argument where somebody says, oh, no, you know, because there's actually other countries that are equivalent to ours and all that. There's no discussion. If you say that we should have strong borders, like I happen to believe, well, you're just a racist. If you're opposed to same-sex marriage, we're not having a discussion about that. You're just a bigot. So I like to emphasize that we are being yeah. run not by reason, but by ideology. Well, and that ties back to your earlier point about truth. And this is almost where it's become so reductionistic. What is true? And I, I think that really is, as you pointed out, that's the baseline, because if it's not true, then ideologies, all bets are off. You can use any pronoun, any, you know, whatever you want uh, to defend your position. And again, I think for many of us, it's not that we believe these things, Erwin, it's we don't know how to engage a conversation without being called a bigot or a fascist, which I find ironic because those are the terms that we would say to them. <laughs> yeah. When you apply this ideology, you are fascist. You know? yeah. But we're off kilter. And I think most Christians, is like apologetics on steroids. We don't know how to have these conversations, Erwin. Now, we don't want to get too philosophical, but I do have to point out this, Michael, that if truth exists, God exists. Because if you have anything that is objective, anything that is absolute, there has to be some basis for that absolutism. And everybody has their absolutes. You know, years ago, there was a young woman in a church, in a church that I was the pastor of, who told me she was sitting across the aisle from a student in the university who wrote a one-page paper arguing that there was no truth, that truth was not coherent, 
and there was no truth. So she gave me the paper. I wrote him back a very short note and said, if there is no truth, one thing I know in advance is that you have written a page full of lies, and every time you open your mouth to speak, we will know in advance that you are lying. She gave him the note, and to his everlasting credit, she said he never said a word to her for the rest of the semester. Now, a lot of others would just go on and on and on. No, everybody believes in the law of non-contradiction, and that law of reason could not exist unless there was a God who's a creator who created within the human mind the capacity to know that ultimately all truth claims are exclusive. If you say, for example, that 2 plus 2 is equal to 4, which it is, there are almost an infinite number of wrong answers to that question. That's a very exclusive claim. So what we must understand is that the world that says it is so tolerant, that's how come it has become so viscerally intolerant. It's because it is not willing to allow into its worldview any other view than the view that it has taken, which means that it believes it is actually an expression of reality and truth. So those are the kinds of discussions we have to have, but ultimately, truth is rooted in God. So let me ask again. We believe this. We understand this. The average person at the Moody Church, at churches that I've served, men and women who love God, who are disciples who are growing, they feel off balance. They feel at a loss. And I don't think it's maybe sometimes it's lack of courage, but I think more of it is they feel the attack is so unreasonable. Where do you begin to talk? So when, when your son or daughter comes home, and this is part of your book, and says, I think I'm trans, I want to change my identity, forget the pronoun, let's go ahead with hormones and surgeries, we're off kilter. We don't know what to say. We don't want to get angry and yell and scream. So, so help us out on the pragmatics, Erwin. Well, first of all, you have to listen to your child. Children often turn away. Many of them become angry because they become angry with their parents, so they become angry with God. I hate my dad, therefore I hate his God. So what you have to do is to listen, to try to understand. But then having understood to the best of your ability, you have to help them see, first of all, as I mentioned earlier, that ultimately self-perception is not always correct. We all know the statistics that many of these children, about 80%, later on when they become older, realize that they aren't trans. What we also have to help them to see is the consequences. You talked about surgery. Do you realize that somebody who has surgery like that will never become a biological parent? because they will have so messed up their bodies, and the damage is irreversible, and there are many out there who have experienced it who are saying yes. that, but their voices are being shouted down, because once again, yep. we're not in an era of discussion, we're in an era of ideology, and woe to the person who doesn't come up to the ideology. So what we need to do is to help them to see that the biblical doctrine of creation is really a plus in their lives and not a minus. If they want to have real fulfillment, real sense of who they are, 
we have to get back to the biblical God and the biblical creation. You know, it's interesting, before this trans surgery, and you've probably read the same piece I've read from the Johns Hopkins surgeon who pioneered the procedures and the first individual, and they were going around doing a circuit talking about we should no longer do these surgeries, and the patient was saying that he wished he had never had it done. But that surgeon passed away, and of course, it's been erased from the Hopkins history book, so to speak. And we don't want to listen to that type of information. But at the same time, I've often argued when you eliminate hormonal supplement and or surgery, you're still X or Y. Oh, sure, sure. There, there was no opportunity to change, to be trans, your pronoun, until you began to introduce medical technologies and chemistry. Otherwise, you're stuck with who you're born. And, you know, even after you have all of these cosmetics changes, you still are either a man or a woman. Yeah, X or you know, Y. I met a couple at Moody Church the other day. I know a couple who just had a brand new baby girl. Now, one thing they didn't do when they told the grandparents, when the grandparents said, what is it? They didn't say, the child is a they, <laughs> you know, and yet we're supposed to use the word they. I want to say this. If you go to a church where the pastor says, these are my pronouns, even if he is consistent, cisgender, but he wants you to know that his pronouns are he and he or him, don't walk, run. You can't make it up. <laughs> Run to win. Running to win. Running okay. To win. <laughs> Let's talk about the emphasis on woke and social justice and uh, some of the things that you raise in the book. Well, what I try to show there is that the social justice issue and DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, is actually working against us and not for us. You know, Michael, and you may remember this, though I am older than you, that in the 80s, we worked toward what we called racial reconciliation. What we wanted to do is to show the unity of the races, because there's only one race, and that is the human race. There are different ethnicities. And we believe that that is best demonstrated in the church. And at Moody Church, then, as well as now, I'm sure, we have more than 70 different countries of origin represented. How else can we think about Revelation 5, where you have people from every tongue and people and nation? But critical race theory and DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, tears against all of that because it says we have to divide now on the basis of our skin. In the book, I have a brief review of white fragility, which basically says... If you're white, you're racist, and if you don't think you are, just admit that you actually are, because now what we have is oppression and oppressed set in opposition to one another based on skin color. Obviously, that's going to divide us. So what we saw as the coming together of the various races, ethnicities, is now being torn apart. And so the bottom line is simply this. Critical race theory keeps tearing apart what Jesus died to bring together. 
Where we're talking to Dr. Erwin Lutzer about his new book, No Reason to Hide. You can find this anywhere books are sold online. If you still have a brick-and-mortar book in your town that sells Christian books, I encourage you to pick it up. Erwin is writing a series of books in this last few years that are all hitting it out of the park. And I wish every Christian and every church would pull them in and say, let's have a Bible study. There's a workbook that goes along with it. Let's take it to a Sunday school, have a small group. Do it in your small group and say, tell us what you think. Attack the book, if you will. Read it and challenge his thinking. Because as a body of believers, we're losing so much ground in our voices in the culture, and more importantly, our voices in the family of God. Because Christians are capitulating left and right. They're afraid. They're living in fear. They want to be loving. And they have this sort of bow to the culture. Erwin, in our, in our last kind of our closing comment, give me a summary of why you think No Reason to Hide is such a seminal book. And you're thinking, I mean, you went to the labor to write it. So when someone picks it up, what's the punch? Why do you want them to understand what's at stake? What I want them to understand is this, that we cannot avoid the culture. We have to speak to it biblically. And, you know, the last chapter, maybe we should go there since we are coming to the end. Good. The last chapter has to do with answering this question. What price are we willing to pay for faithfulness? That's the question going forward. And in that last chapter where I talk about suffering for Christ, I believe that we as Americans need to rethink that. We think to ourselves that, you know, surely... If we were all that we should be, we'd always have freedom of religion and wealth and all those other things. That's not the way it's been historically. What we must do is to recognize that the church has always been an island of righteousness in a sea of paganism and has always had stiff and unrelenting opposition to the culture, even to the point of death. So we need to rethink that. Jesus said, blessed are you if men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Great shall your reward be in heaven. So Michael, as a conclusion, I want Christians to be able to think not in terms of time, but in terms of eternity and to recognize that we will have to lose our jobs, some people who are listening may have to, but we have to ask, is Christ worth it, or are we going to contaminate our consciences because we have to keep our job, we don't want to create any waves, and we simply go along with the flow? That's the division that I see happening. My book was written to help people to say, following Christ in all of these cultural issues and being able to answer the world is worth it, no matter the consequences. Dr. Erwin Lutzer, the book is No Reason to Hide. It followed his book, We Will Not Be Silenced. Prior to that, a Strengthen What Remains. These are a great set of books you need to be reading and thinking through critically. I don't know how much time you have. I know my runway gets shorter and shorter the older I get. And as time goes by, you look at your children and grandchildren and wonder, what in the world are we leaving them? And Erwin is writing the kind of text I think you and I need to be engaged with to understand how we live faithfully in a faithless culture and, tragically, in a lot of churches that are becoming faithless. Again, the book, you need to pick it up. No reason to hide. Erwin Lutzer. Erwin, always great to talk to you. Thanks for your scholarship, your commitment, and your friendship all these years. 
Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.